0: morning, everybody. My name is Josh Miller. I'm the lead pastor here at Center Church. Uh, and if you're a guest with us here today, I just want to give you a special shout out. Man, I'm really excited that you're here uh, and would love to get to know you better. So a couple ways you can do that. We have a tent set up outside where uh, you can give us a little information. And we'll follow up with you and even give you a small gift to say thanks for being with us. I would also just love to get to know you and uh, take you out to coffee. So uh, if you're new, come say hey to me after the service and, and we can set that up. So last week, we started a new series where we're going to work chapter by chapter through the book of Ephesians, chapter by chapter through the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, you can take that out or turn it on uh, and and turn to Ephesians chapter one. We're going to pick up in verse 15, right where we left off last week. Uh, And if you know me, something you'll know about me is that I'm a bit of a history buff. So I uh, majored in history in college, which is very interesting, but not very helpful, right, when you go to get a job. So any other history majors in the house? We got some history majors here. Yeah, yeah, in the back, right? They don't have jobs either, you know. It's just us. We're, um, so I love, I love history. I'm very inspired by history. And in particular, I love to read the biographies of men and women that God has used in a really mighty way throughout history. Uh, and I just love to hear their stories and what God can do through one life. So uh, men like George Whitfield, who God used in the 1700s to bring thousands and thousands of people to faith in Christ. Pastors like Charles Spurgeon, who God used in the 1800s over 30 years of faithful ministry to change the entire spiritual climate of England. Women like Lottie Moon, who grew up here in Albemarle County and actually came to faith in Christ at First Baptist Church. It wasn't on Park Street at the time, but that's the same church. And then she gave her life to the people of China. And her example was so inspiring that it galvanized hundreds and hundreds of of people to go to the mission field ever since. So I love reading these stories, and as you read them, one of the things that you'll, you'll notice that I've noticed is that each of these people is very different. So George Whitfield, for example, grew up in a pretty large city working right in the middle of it. Uh, he went to Oxford, and then he went on to be a, a cleric in the Church of England. Charles Spurgeon grew up in the country. He grew up as the son of a country pastor. He never went to college, but he ended up pastoring this really large church in London. And Lottie Moon was brilliant. I mean, she was one of the first women in America to obtain a master's degree. And one of the reasons that she was so influential was that she was such a persuasive communicator. She could, she could speak and she could write uh, in, a really, in a really incredible way, and that galvanized people to action. So as you look at these men and women throughout history, you think, gosh, they seem so different. What is it that, that makes them so powerfully used of God? And here's, here's what I've found. Here's my hypothesis. The one thing that draws them all together is really simple. God was very real to them. God was very real to them. And that doesn't seem all that impressive, right? That doesn't seem very complex. It doesn't seem, uh, you know, like kind of what, whatever the secret is, it doesn't seem that, that impressive, and yet that's, that's what it is. They really truly believe not just things about God, but in God himself and in God's presence in their life. On the one hand, I find that really comforting, because that means, uh, man, we, we don't have to be special. We don't have to have some crazy education. We don't have to be a genius or have some sort of Steve Jobs level aptitude. But if God Almighty is very real in our lives, we can be used to do incredible things, right? Just like these people were, normal people who were used in incredible ways. I, I think that's good news if you're here and you're investigating Christianity because it simplifies things. It means that Christianity is not about learning and mastering a, a broad range of religious techniques, but it's about simply knowing God through Christ. It's simply about knowing God through Christ. And that, that kind of levels the playing field and it says, hey, you didn't have to grow up in church. You don't have to go off and get a, a master's degree in theology. If you know God through Christ, you have the fundamental thing of Christianity. So on one hand, that's comforting to me, but on the other hand, that's challenging. It's challenging because maybe you can relate with me, but oftentimes in my life, God feels distant, right? If not distant, he at least feels vague. It's not that I've stopped believing things about God. It's not that I've stopped believing the Bible or stopped believing my theological convictions. They just don't feel real to me. Does that make sense? They just don't feel palpable. They don't feel present. And yet great Men and women of God throughout history, man, have felt his presence really closely. They've, they've moved from believing in God in an intellectual sense to really believing in God at a heart level. I was talking to Justin this week, and something he said to me really, really struck. He said, you know, it's one thing to believe the gospel in our minds. It's another thing to believe the gospel in our guts. It's a great Justin phrase, in our guts, right? At the heart level, to really believe these things that I read about God and that I say I believe about God, man, they're not just out there, but they're in here. They're in my heart. I experience them. Right? And, and I think we all understand this, right? That's why we have the phrase, you just had to be there. You've used that phrase before. There's some things that you can't really ex- understand until you experience them. So I was talking to a friend of mine who went to the concert for Charlottesville a couple years ago. You remember that? Where Justin Timberlake came in and performed? And he said, he said, man, Justin Timberlake is unbelievable. He's the quote, this exact quote, watching him perform made me want to be better at everything in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Like he, that was an experiential knowledge that he had of just watching this extremely talented performer, right? He knew who Justin Timberlake was, he knew some of his songs, but when he experienced that performance, it affected him. It changed him. It made him, man, he overwhelmed with passion. He was telling everybody about it. You see, that is what great men and women of God throughout history have had. And as we look at Ephesians chapter one today, we're going to see that that is what Paul wants us to have. That is what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church that they would have, that we wouldn't just know things about God, but we would have a deep, heart-level, experiential knowledge of who God is. And the truth is, if that's true of us, if we really get that experiential knowledge of God, if he feels close to us, it's going to enable us to be steadfast in the midst of any circumstance. I mean, think about it. If, If you're lonely, if you feel ashamed, if you feel overwhelmed if you feel defeated by sin or full of doubts, if you feel inadequate, if you feel all those ways, but alongside of that, you know at a heart level, man, God Almighty is with me, then you're going to be able to bear up under it. And you're going to be able to be steadfast and poised. Here's another thing I've learned about the great men and women of God in history. Their lives were often difficult. They faced incredible challenges. They faced criticism from the outside. They faced internal doubts. They faced sometimes devastating setbacks, and yet they had this enormous capacity to get back up and to keep going. And it's because they knew that in their weakness, God was with them and God was enough. God was with them and God was enough. That is what Paul wants for you, and that's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. I want to feel and experience God at the heart level because when we do, we'll say, God is enough. Even if everything else goes wrong, even if none of my plans work out, even if my life doesn't look like what I hoped it would look like, but if I have God, man, I'm going to overflow, overflow in joy and satisfaction. That is what Paul wanted for the Ephesians. That is what Paul wants for you today. He wants you to know God so that you would overflow in joy and satisfaction. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 with me. He says this, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So Paul's encouraged by the Ephesians. Apparently, he had heard about their faith from someone else. Someone else had come by and seen Paul and said, man, the Ephesian church is doing really well, right? They believe in Christ, they study his word, and that overflows in love towards other believers. So Paul's encouraged by this church in Ephesus. So it's not as though he's praying this prayer for a church that's really struggling, right? But he's praying this prayer for a church that's doing really well. So if this is what Paul wants for that church, it follows that he probably wants this for all churches. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So Paul starts by giving thanks for the Ephesians. He says, I always remember in you my prayer. I give thanks to God for you. So he's, he's grateful for them. He feels a lot of affection towards them. And then in verse 17 and 18, Paul tells us the content of his prayer. So thanksgiving is the attitude of his prayer, but 17 and 18 tells us the content. What does he actually pray for this Ephesian church? Here's what it is. His primary prayer for them is not circumstantial. It's that they would have a deeper knowledge of God. That they would have a deeper knowledge of God. I love how the NIV translates it. It says it this way. I keep asking God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So that you may know him better. That might sound a little strange because... Paul just spent the first half of this chapter explaining that the Ephesians were Christians. He was very very excited for them. He was, man, you've been adopted. You're part of the family of God. So it's not that they didn't have a knowledge of God, some knowledge of God. Paul just wanted them to have a deeper and deeper knowledge of God. That was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. That's my prayer for us as a church, that those of us who have some knowledge of God, who are following after Christ would go deeper and deeper into that knowledge because that is where we find joy and that is where we find satisfaction regardless of our circumstances. And the word that Paul uses is really helpful. See, he doesn't use the word oida. Everybody say oida. Ready? One, two, three. Oida. That's great. Just teaching you Greek one word at a time. Okay. So oida is a Greek word that means data or knowledge. So an example of oida would be Richmond is the capital of Virginia. Okay, I know that Richmond is the capital of Virginia, but the word that he uses is the Greek word gnosko. Everybody say gnosko. Ready? One, two, three. Gnosko. You see, you guys are on your way to being a biblical scholar. Um, gnosko is a word in Greek that refers to experiential knowledge. Okay, it's that I I heard of Justin Timberlake and then I attended a Justin Timberlake concert. Okay, it's uh, I know I know how skydiving works. I understand the concepts. My wife has actually been skydiving. I have an oida knowledge of skydiving. She has a gnosco knowledge of skydiving. Does that make sense? It's that classic, like, you just had to be there. I can't explain it. That's what Paul is saying. He's like, man, I want you to have a deeper and deeper experiential knowledge of God. And in particular, Paul is going to lay out three aspects of God that he wants us to have a knowledge of. So he wants us to go deeper into these three aspects of God, okay? And that's what I'm going to walk us through. But I have to tell you at the front end that Paul is praying this because some of this can't can't be realized without the power of God. Paul literally prays, hey, guys, I want God to open the eyes of your heart because unless he does, we're not going to experience his reality. In many ways, the reality of God in your life is a spiritual gift. It's the Holy Spirit enabling you to take what you believe in your mind and move it down to your heart. So before we get into this text and before I start explaining all these things to you, I just want to stop and pray and just ask that the Holy Spirit would do that same thing for us today that Paul prayed that he would do for the Ephesian church 2,000 years ago, okay? So you guys just pray with me. Father, you are glorious and you are wonderful. And when we know you, God, truly, we are satisfied and full of joy but, Father, we, we, do, we can't know you on our own. God, the eyes of our heart are closed, and I know for myself and probably for many people here, we know things in our head about you, but they fail to affect our hearts anymore. So, God, I just pray that in this moment as we preach through this text, God, that you would give us a very special empowerment of your spirit that we would not just know in our minds, but we'd really feel in our hearts the reality of who you are, and that would thrill us, and that would satisfy us, and that would lead us to courageous obedience because we just feel you and we know that you're better. So God, today, by the power of your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts that we may know you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so three things that Paul wants you to know more deeply about God. You ready? Here's number one. He wants you to know the hope of the Father's calling. The hope of the Father's calling. This is in verse 18. Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so this is still his prayer, for what, Paul? That you may know what is the hope What is the hope to which he, God, has called you? So God has called you to something. God the Father has called you to something. And Paul is saying, understanding that calling opens up to you an immense storehouse of hope. So what is that calling? What's he talking about? Well, he's referring back to verse 4. He's referring back to verse 4 that we talked about last week where Paul wrote, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul wants you to understand at a heart level the hope that is connected with being chosen by God before the foundation of the earth. He wants you to understand the hope of your conversion. And to understand how strong your hope is, you have to understand a degree of how strong your God is. To understand how strong your hope is, you have to understand how strong your God is. How strong, who is the one that chose you? That makes all the difference. If the one who chose you is weak and foolish and and can't follow through on promises and deceive, then your hope isn't very strong. But if the one who called you is, is strong, is powerful, is wise, okay, now your hope levels are rising. So what do we know about the God who chose you before the foundation of the earth? Well, the Bible tells us a, a lot. So number one, we know that God is omnipotent. That's a theological word that means all powerful. That means that God is on his throne and he never has been and he never will be challenged. There is no school of thought. There is no political movement. There is no religious ideology that threatens God's throne. He is high and exalted, high above the heavens and the earth. The scriptures say that he has to look down on the heavens and the earth. That means he's so high exalted that the highest thing in our minds, the heavens, are below him. God is complete in power. Nothing can stand against his will. Nothing can stand against his desires. He is utter in power and strength. There is literally nothing in the world that can illustrate God's power because there's nothing in the world that has this kind of power. The God who called you has all power. What else do we know? The God who calls you is omniscient, which means he has all knowledge It means that God is complete in his wisdom, that he has seen the end from the beginning, that there is never a moment where God is surprised by something. There's never a moment that God is deceived. No one can lie to God. God never didn't see something coming, right? God never makes a promise and then can't follow through on it because the circumstances change. He's completely perfect in knowledge and wisdom. He's omniscient. God is also omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere all the time that there's no place in heaven on earth that you or I could go that his presence is not there. He is everywhere all the time. And that is the God who chose you. God is faithful, which means he always keeps his promises. He has never once broken a promise that he's made. God is merciful, which means he's patient with us in our weakness, which means that he is kind and gracious to those who fall. God is holy, which means he will not allow a single injustice to stand in the end, that he will make every wrong right. And God is steadfast, steadfast in love towards you. Steadfast in love towards you, which means his love is not easily quenched. His love persists through our apathy. It persists through rejection and indifference. It is a gritty, strong, resilient love. It's more resilient than any love any of us have ever experienced here on earth. Those are just some of the characteristics of the God who called you. And Paul is saying, I want you to understand the hope that you should be filled with because of the God who called you. Think about it. Because God is omnipotent, you can admit your weaknesses. You don't have to be strong because the God who called you is unlimited in strength. Because God is omnipresent, you will never truly be alone. There's nowhere that you could go. There's nothing that could happen to you. There's no amount of people that could reject you or leave you that would truly make you alone because the God who called you is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Because God possesses all wisdom and perfect knowledge, you can trust his plan for your life. God has never made a mistake in your life. God has never led you down a false path. There is nothing that you can do that will move you so far outside of God's plan that he's like, well, I was hoping this, but we can't do that now. God is perfect in his wisdom and knowledge for your life. God is faithful, which means you can build your life on his promises. You don't have to build your life on your strength. You don't have to build your life on your abilities. You can build your life on him. And because God is steadfast in his love towards you, he will never give up on you. He will never give up on you. It doesn't matter even if you've given up on yourself. God is more committed to you than you could ever be committed to yourself. And that, friend, should fill us with inexpressible hope, inexpressible hope. If we recognize who the God is who called us, it should fill us with inexpressible hope for our pilgrimage in this life. C.S. Lewis uh, was a prominent scholar at Oxford University in the 1900s, and he wrote an enormous amount of books. And one of the book series he wrote was called The Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody read The Chronicles of Narnia growing up, right? Awesome, love it. So I'm reading them to uh, my son James right now, and we're on uh, the fourth book, which is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, a couple of the main characters, Lucy being one of them, uh, get pulled out of England into this world of Narnia, and they're on this ship, and they're trying to sail to the end of the world, and they're experiencing all kinds of adventures along the way. And Lucy is nine. She's a nine-year-old girl, but she she has, man, she's one of the most courageous characters in the book. I mean, she just has this incredible courage. She's great of heart. And they find themselves trapped on this island by these invisible islanders, okay? So they can't see them, but these islanders have spears and they're like attacking them. And the islanders will only let them leave if Lucy will go and sneak into the house of a magician, this magician had cursed these people to make them invisible, find his book and reverse the invisibility spell okay? So they're like, hey, unless you do this, we're going to kill you. You have to go off to the magician's house and you have to sneak in there and you have to do this, right? She's nine. So she sneaks off to do it because there's no real other option. And and she's just filled with fear, right? I mean, we would all probably be that way. She's filled with fear and trepidation. She's creeping through this very strange house, right? It's a magician's house and it's dark and it's ominous. And, you know, Lewis is giving you her inner dialogue, which is really interesting. Like every doorway, she's like, is he, he, is he there? Is he there? I don't know where he is. And, is he gonna sneak up on me? Man, he, he's obviously very powerful. He cursed this whole group of people, like, and she's she's very scared. So she finally finds his spell book and she's flipping through it. She's like looking out the door and everything's creaking, and she's like, he's about to get me. And she comes to this spell that says it will make all invisible things visible. So she thinks, ah, okay, I found the spell. I've just got to say this spell, and then the and then the the people will be visible. I can run out of here and we can get on the boat and leave. So she says the spell out out loud, and as soon as she says it, she's startled and she's delighted because she sees Aslan the lion, who represents Jesus, in the room next to her. And she says, oh, Aslan, I'm so glad you've come. And she's she's not afraid anymore. She doesn't feel trepidation anymore. She's filled with courage and joy. She says, Aslan, I'm so glad you've come. And he responds and says... I've always been here, Lucy. You just couldn't see me. He said, I've always always been here, Lucy. I've I've been walking with you through this entire house. You just couldn't see me. You see, that is what is true if you are a child of God. There is never a moment in your life that Aslan the Lion isn't right there next to you. Now, sometimes we don't see him. Sometimes we don't feel him. And so we're filled with fear and trepidation. But that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, if you are a child of God, you should be filled with inexpressible hope, no matter what your circumstance, because the God of all creation sees you, and the God of all creation is with you. And because of that, you don't have to be afraid. Paul wants us to know, at a deep, heart, experiential level, the hope of the Father's calling. Here's the second thing he wants us to know. He wants us to know the riches of the son's inheritance. The riches of the son's inheritance. Verses 16 through 18. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. See, Paul wants you to understand just how rich your inheritance really is. He wants you to see just how bright your future is. That's what Paul wants you to see, not in just a vague sense, but at a deep heart level sense, in a life-transforming sense. He says that the riches that await you will fill you with joy and endurance when your circumstances are challenging. And he wants you to understand that all of those riches are yours in Christ, in Christ. You see how he says that? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So the inheritance belongs to Jesus, right? It's his name on the will, so to speak. But if you are in Christ, those riches also belong to you. You see, to become a Christian means to die to yourself and to live as Christ. Which is why Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. The hope that you have as a Christian is that you are united with Jesus. So when you stand before God the Father, he will not judge you based off of your imperfect resume, but he will judge you based off of Jesus' perfect resume. And being united in Christ through faith also gives us access to all of his inheritance. We gain the perfect inheritance of the Son of God. Everything that was Jesus's is ours when we are in him. Uh, Meredith and I went to a UVA basketball game earlier this year, which is just a ton of fun. And I know a guy that works on the coaching staff, and he got us tickets. And so he said, hey, go to the will call, tell them your name, they'll find them under my name, and then just, you know, find your tickets. So we go, and I'd never been to a game before, so I didn't know what kind of tickets they would be. I'm like, they're free, they probably won't be very good, but that's okay, right? It's like, anything that's free, the tickets can be terrible, I didn't pay anything for them. Um, so we go to the will call, and we get the tickets, and, you know, you, you know hey, do, you just kind of look at where you are, and you're trying to like, okay, and you're following the signs, and, you know, trying to find where you're going. And so we just, we keep going down, like, we just, all right, no, that's not us. We just, we keep going further and further down in JPJ. And so we realized we are literally sitting on the first row behind the UVA bench. All right, we had four seats. Like, it, we were so close to the court that my brother-in-law would text us, like, every three minutes and be like, I see you on ESPN. I see you on ESPN. I see, we are like, we get it, man. You see us on ESPN, you know? <laughs> Meredith and I were literally stressing out that, like, we didn't want to knock over our drink because it would have gone onto the court, like, we're like, we're going to be that guy, you know, that stops the whole game. Because, like, like the guy in the first row just spilled his orange crushed soda, you know. Like, Anyway, so we're down. I mean, it was an amazing experience. It was awesome. Like, just being right down there. I mean, I could hear them in the huddle. Like, it was crazy. And uh, I came to find out that we were sitting in the family and friends row. The family and friends row. Um, those seats were literally priceless because they're not for sale. Like, you cannot buy a seat in the family and friends row. It is reserved for the coaching staff for their family and friends. Right? So we got to have this incredible experience. We got to have this extraordinary access, this awesome game, not because of who we are, but because of who my friend is. You following that? I got all of his privilege based on him vouching for me. That's how your inheritance works in Christ. Outside of Christ, you have no inheritance. We have no inheritance. But in Christ, you have an incredible inheritance. You've got the floor seats. It's not because you have the access, it's because Christ has the access, and when you place your faith in him, you are wrapped up in Christ, and God the Father looks at you in heaven and says, Christ in you, which is why Paul would say, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. This internal inheritance that we're looking forward to was a huge deal in the early church, In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? In Colossians 1, 10 through 12, Paul wrote, Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, understanding the richness of their future inheritance was a huge deal to the early church because for many of them, following Jesus meant giving up everything. Every one of Jesus' apostles was martyred for their faith, every single one. Many of the earliest Christians were dragged out of their homes and thrown in prison for worshiping Christ. Others lost enormous amounts of money for refusing to bow and worship Caesar. They were ostracized from the marketplace. They were cut out of important social positions. They lost their status. They lost their riches. They lost all of their earthly power. And if they were going to lose all of that, they had to know it was worth it. So what Paul is saying, what he's praying for the Ephesians and he's praying for us today is, man, I want you to understand at a deep heart level that it's worth it. That at a deep heart level, your inheritance is extraordinarily rich. Unbelievably rich. How rich? What does our inheritance include? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us everything. But it gives us a picture. It says, In heaven, we will experience perfect relationships with one another and with God. The most meaningful, joyful, laughter-filled community you can imagine. You will no longer be insecure. You will no longer be slighted. You'll be set free of fear. You'll not wonder, you know, wonder what people think of you. right? You won't feel isolated even in the midst of a party. Right, You will feel completely known and completely loved. The community that awaits us in heaven is better than the greatest community that you ever have experienced here on earth. You'll experience fulfilling work. Every day you will do something where your passions and your gifts and God's glory come together. And you will labor with joy. And you will use your skills. And you will produce things that glorify God. And you'll say, I love what I do. You will never feel like you're wasting your life. You will never be frustrated by bureaucratic red tape. You'll never be beat down by a toxic work culture. Right? You'll never struggle to balance work and life. You will have perfect, satisfying, fulfilling work that you are passionate about. And we will trade our lowly bodies in for heavenly bodies, which means that you will be free of all pain. If you you struggle with chronic illness, You won't struggle anymore. You will not cry tears of sorrow. You will only cry tears of joy. You won't ever mourn the loss of a friend or a loved one. We will be delivered from the decay of our bodies. And we'll be delivered from the temptation of our flesh. We'll be delivered from that desire within us that says, man, I really want this, even though I know Christ is calling me to that. We won't feel that anymore. The thing that we love and that we desire will also be the thing that is worthy of being loved and desired. We will want to worship Jesus. We will want to honor him. We will want to obey him, and we will rejoice to do so. Man, those are just a few of the things that God tells us in his word are awaiting us, are awaiting you as an inheritance in Christ. And if you get that in your mind's eye, if you get that fixed in your mind, it will empower you towards courageous obedience even in the midst of great persecution. Reminds me of the story of William Tyndale. So William Tyndale was this brilliant scholar who lived in the 1500s, and he went off to Oxford in England, and he mastered all kinds of different languages, and he was he was brilliant, and he was a man of strong character, and because of that, he landed the ultimate plush job. You ready for this? He became a chaplain for a very rich British family. I mean, this was the this was the most plush job you could have. Okay, you got to live in a giant country estate, you had your own house. All of your needs were provided for, and you could read and write to your heart's content. I mean, literally, all he had to do was like once a week lead a family devotional. I'm like, can I get that gig? <laughs> I lead family devotionals all the time, you know? like, Right? I mean, he was the ultimate job. All of his, if you went to Oxford and you were a really gifted academic, this was your dream job. It was kind of the equivalent of being uh, like a tenured professor at a really elite university today. Like you couldn't get fired, like you were in. you had it set. He was the, the envy of all of his peers back at Oxford. He'd arrived, he'd made it, he'd climbed the ladder, he was done. But after two years, he left his job. He left his job. Because, get this, this is crazy to think about. At that time, there was no translation of the Bible into English at all in the whole world. So the only way you could read the Bible if you spoke English was just if you could also read Greek or Latin. Anybody here read Greek or Latin? Uh, you, yeah, all the UVA students are gone. That's good because they'd be like, I do, you know. No, it's like if you if you weren't some sort of elite top-end person, you could not read the Bible. And Tyndale was Tyndale was like, I can't stand for that. He had the ability because he was such a gifted academic to say, I can do this. I can translate the Bible from Greek, from Latin into English so that The millions of people around the world that only speak English can read it. But for a number of different reasons, the religious and political establishment was not for this. They did not want common people having God's word available to them. So they forbid him to translate the Bible on pain of death. But Tyndale did it anyway. He left his plush job, and for years he was on the run, translating the Bible as he went from end to end, trying to avoid the authorities. He eventually found himself in Europe. Right? Hiding out because he figured the English can't get to me here. And one of his closest friends betrayed him. Betrayed him to the king of England. And so in 1536, he was burned at the stake as a heretic for wanting to translate the Bible into English. And before he died, with his last breath, he cried out, God, open the king of England's eyes. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And then he died. And here's what's crazy. Years later, God did exactly what he asked. There's a king, his name was King James, who said, hey, we're going to finish Tyndale's work. And he used Tyndale's translation, he ordered some scholars to finish it and to produce it, and that's what we know today is the King James Version of the Bible. The King James Version of the Bible has been read by more people than any other version of the Bible in the entire world. And historians will tell you that it is impossible to estimate the impact of the King James Version Bible on the development of the church and on the development of Western society. Think about it. For the very first time, all of us could actually read the Bible. Millions of people went from death to life because now they could actually read the words of the Lord. Why did Tyndale give up his life? Why did Tyndale give up luxury and accomplishment and fame to do something that would cost him so much? Here's why. Because he saw the inheritance that awaited him. In his mind's eye, he saw himself walking through the gates of heaven and Jesus coming up to him and saying, Tyndale, you did it. You did it. You translated my word so that millions of people could hear of my grace and love for them. Well done Come into my presence. There is no other explanation for the life of a man like William Tyndale than the reality of an inheritance that awaited him. Man, Paul wanted the Ephesians to know, and I want you to know, and I want to know personally at the heart level how incredible heaven is going to be. So that when you face hardship in in this life, when your job is hard, when people ostracize you for your faith, when you struggle with sin, when you just want to give up, you say, no, I'm going to get back up. I'm going to keep going because what is awaiting me is amazing. Paul wants you to know the riches of the son's inheritance. That's the second thing. Here's the third thing, last thing. Paul wants you to know the power of the Spirit's presence. The power of the Spirit's presence. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul wants you to understand that the same power and the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead Is available to you right now in your life. Now that might be surprising. That might be like, "What? I've never heard that before." So let me flesh this out for a second, okay? So after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he spent forty days with more than five hundred people. He spent forty days with more than five hundred people. He ate with them. He talked with them. He explained the scriptures to them, and he told them what their job was once he ascended into heaven. They were to go into all the earth and preach the gospel so that people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue could repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. And before he ascended into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he said, Wait here in Jerusalem, after I ascend, until my Father gives you his Holy Spirit, until my Father blesses you with the promised Holy Spirit. So they did. And sure enough, about 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, on the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast day, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. The Holy Spirit was given to that initial group of 500 followers. And if you read Acts chapter 2, you see the incredible impact that it had. All of a sudden, man, people are being saved left and right, and incredible power is at work in the early church. So here's what Paul wants you to grasp the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead seated him at the right hand of God the Father, and put every single other power and name and authority underneath his feet, that same power is at work in you. That same power is at work in you. If you are a follower of Christ, the moment that you repented of your sins and you trusted in Jesus Christ, God the Father sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit. That was verse 14 of last week. He sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit. He gave you the power of his Spirit because here's the thing. God knows that on our own we can't do this thing. I don't know about you, but I've come to the end of thinking I'm pretty great and I can do it. I I just can't. I don't often do the thing that I know I should do. I get beat up. I lose hope. I lose perspective. And yet God is saying, it's okay. I'm going to carry you along. And Paul is saying, hey, Ephesians, I want you to understand not just that you have access to the spirit, but how incredibly powerful that spirit is. I mean, think about it. Think about what God has done in creation. Right, He spoke a word and made everything out of nothing. He created 300 billion trillion stars. That's a lot of stars. I don't even know how to make that number a number. 300 billion trillion stars in, that we know of. Each one putting out the same amount of energy as a trillion megaton bombs every second. Every second. That's what stars do, and that's how many there are of them. And then some of those stars are so big that, they, that physicists can't even describe them. Astronomers can't even descri- describe them. So there's one in the Milky Way galaxy called ADA Karin, And it is five million times brighter than the sun. It is five. I don't even know how to con- conceptualize that. It is five million times brighter than the sun. And God simply blew that star into existence. He, like, struck it like you strike a match on a matchbox, Man, that is power, and Paul is saying, guys, understand that that power is at work in your life. And, and if you take that a step further to application, I mean, have you ever felt like there's just a habit you can't break? Have you ever felt like there's a person in your family that's just never going to change? Have you ever felt like you're just always going to be this way and nothing can fix it, or you've gone too far and you've broken this this relationship, or you re, you have too many regrets? What Paul is saying is. Man, if you really start to grasp even just a bit of the power of God, you'll never think that. There is nothing in our lives, guys, that God cannot overcome. That is how much power he has. And here's what's key. Here's what you really got to understand about about this passage, because I don't want to deceive you. I don't want you to be like, great, I'm just going to go out, everything's going to be great and easy, and I'm going to kill it, you know, because I got the spirit. The power at work in us is resurrection power. Do you see how when, when Paul explains it, he illustrated it with the resurrection? You see how he did that? He didn't use creation. That's what I would have done. He used the resurrection. He said, hey, you see how this power works in the resurrection. Jesus was humbled, and he died, and he obeyed the Father, and then he was exalted. You see, God's power is demonstrated and made perfect in weakness. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians twelve nine. Not, hear me, in strength. Now, this is weird for us. This is weird for me. Because here's how we tend to think about things, I think. I tend to, and maybe you do too, I think we associate power with strength. And here's what I mean. Strong people, CEOs, politicians, you know, VPs of marketing, you know, university presidents, whatever. Strong people have power to change things, right? That's how we tend to think. They have power. They have authority. But what what God is saying, what Paul is saying here is that the power of God, true power, is not found in our strength. It's found in our weakness, You see, the power of God was not demonstrated in Jesus coming on a white horse and slaying all of his enemies. It was demonstrated in him coming as a humble servant and dying for his enemies. You see, if you want to see the resurrection power of God at work in your life, you have to understand that God is most likely to move through the areas that you feel weak. When we come to him and say, God, I am weak. I can't do this. Would you work in me? I think, honestly, Mother Teresa is a really good illustration of this. Uh, Mother Teresa, you guys probably know who that is. She was a Roman Catholic nun who spent most of her life ministering to the poor and destitute of Calcutta, India. And at some point in her life, her story became known, and she sort of became like the conscience of, Western, of the Western world. She was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979, and she used that platform to go up there and basically call them all back to godly morality. She was invited by multiple presidents of the United States to come and and to talk to them and to address the nation, and she basically just used that platform to, like, chide them, like a teacher would correct a student. Like, in pretty significant moments, she said, hey, don't invite me here if you're not willing to work for the cause of the oppressed. Don't invite me here if you're not willing to work against injustice. Don't invite me here if you're not going to work against greed and conceit in your structures. What I love about Mother Teresa is she was a tiny person. Have you ever seen pictures? It's almost hilarious. She's like this tall. And so in all the pictures, she looks really small. She didn't have any money. She didn't really have any formal authority or or status. And yet, she was powerful. The, The strongest men and women around the entire world with all the authority that comes from position and all the authority and power that comes from government sat at her feet like a second grader. And she chided them, and she called them to repentance. You see, here's the thing about Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was not strong, but Mother Teresa was powerful. Mother Teresa was not strong in any sense of the word. She was very weak, but she was powerful because she held spiritual authority. Because the power of God was at work in her. You see, weakness is the channel of God's power. And that's really good news if you feel weak in some areas. That's really good news if there's some aspects of your life that you feel like you've blown it. Because what that means is that might be the area that God wants to pour out his power in you. It means that your greatest regret can become your greatest contribution in the kingdom of God. Maybe you neglected your faith through college. God might be calling you to invest in college students here, to testify to them and say, hey, prioritize this. Maybe your marriage was on the rocks for a long time and you weren't sure how you were going to make it. And then by God's grace and the help of his people, man, you've built a strong marriage. Man, we need you to invest in in young couples and show them, no, God can do this in you. You see, God wants to work through your weakness in the same way that he worked through Jesus' weakness. On the cross, Jesus did not seem very strong, but was there a moment that anyone in all of history was more powerful? He seemed weak, but he was actually accomplishing the salvation of his people. And God works this power in your life. He works the power of his spirit in your life through his church. If you look at verse 22 and 23, it says this And God put all things under his feet, his being Jesus, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, according to this text, Jesus could not be more closely connected to his church. The image Paul uses is that, hey, the church is like a body and Jesus is the head of the body. You can't separate a head from a body, right, without it dying. And Paul is saying, hey, if you want to grow deep in your knowledge of Christ, if you want to experience the power of God in your life, man, connect yourself to the local church because those are Jesus' people. That's his body, right? Practically speaking, for you, that probably just means taking the next step. So maybe that means pursuing membership here. We've got a class coming up on, on June 9th that you're going to hear about in a second. Maybe that means visiting a community group. You've, you've never tried one out. You're, man, you're going to go over the next couple weeks and just visit one. Maybe it simply means just coming consistently on Sunday morning, just being around the people of God. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you know, what your background is necessarily, but I do know that God's desire for you is that you would be a part of his family, the church, because he wants to move in your life. He wants to fill you with resurrection power. And he's shown us in his word that the primary way he does that is through his church. Guys, Paul wants God to be very, very real to you. That's what he wants. He wants you to have a sweetness in your relationship. He wants you to be able to say like those great men and women of faith, I mean, God is here, God is present, and so I can go on. He wants you to know the hope of your calling. He wants you to know the riches of your inheritance. And he wants you to know the incredible power that can be at work within you. And how you respond to that truth, how you process that truth, I think has a lot to do with where you're coming from. So you might be here and you might be doing all the right things, so to speak. You're spending time with God in the morning in prayer and in Bible study. You're a member of the church. You're in a community group, you're serving, you're opening yourself up, as it were, to God's presence. You're saying, God, come and and set my heart on fire. But for whatever reason, you're just not feeling it right now. And if that's you, I want to encourage you. Most of the great saints throughout history have had seasons of dryness, seasons where what they believed in their head just wasn't making it to their heart. And I really believe that faith is most clearly demonstrated when we don't have the feelings that we would desire, but we press through in obedience. So if that's you today, if if that's resonating with you, then be encouraged. Press on. The wilderness season won't last forever. And believe and I'm convinced that God will bring refreshing to your soul. And I know how that is. I would much prefer the mornings when I leave my time with God overflowing with praise and with emotional expression, but sometimes I just leave it saying, okay, I believe these things and I'm going to go do them. Maybe you're here and and you're a follower of Christ, but for whatever reason, you you haven't been doing some of those things that open you up to the presence of God, right? So you, and you haven't been spending time with God in his word. Maybe you haven't tried out a community group, so you're, you're not living in community with other believers. I would just encourage you to start those things. That's one of the reasons we have a reading plan here every month, so we're in 1 Samuel right now, just to help you start a daily time with God, a daily time where you say, God, I'm here. I want you to fill my life so that I feel you and you see really real to me. It's one of the reasons we talk so much about community groups, because when you're in community with other believers, they help you feel the reality of God. So if that's you, man, I just encourage you to take some of those steps. We would love to help you take those steps. And if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, And as I've been talking, you're saying, Josh, this all sounds great, but it sounds like you only get any of this if you are in Christ. And I don't know if I'm in Christ. Man, I would just bring you back to what I said earlier about the simplicity of our faith. You see, the gospel message is not, here's six things, work on them, and then come back in six months and we'll talk about it. The gospel is this, admit your weakness. Admit that in yourself that you're sinful and that you can't know God's presence. But then through the eyes of faith, take hold of Jesus and believe, Jesus, that you died for my sin, you rose from the grave, and you are all that I need. You do that through simple repentance and faith by saying, Jesus, I'm not the Lord, you are, I want to die to myself, and I want to be found in you. And if you do that, if you do that today, all of the things we talked about become yours. Remember, they're not yours because of your record. They're yours because of his. And Jesus is offering his record to you today as a gift of free grace. Should you bow your heads with me? And my great desire, my great desire is that God would be very, very real to me and that God would be very, very real to you as well. Because when that happens, man, we will, we will courageously go where he tells us to go and joyfully do what he tells us to do. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God would be very real to you, that the Spirit would take these things and set your heart ablaze. And as I pray for you, would you pray for me? Would you pray that this same thing would happen for me? Because you never graduate out of needing the Spirit of God. We never graduate out of needing the Spirit of God to open the eyes of our hearts. Father, I'm agreeing with the Apostle Paul when he prayed for the Ephesian church. I'm praying this for me. I'm praying this for Center Church. That by the power of your Spirit, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we would know you more deeply. Father, that we would appreciate and we would rejoice in the hope that we have in our calling. That we would be delighted and thrilled and encouraged by the inheritance of that awaits us in heaven and that we would tap into the immeasurable greatness of your power for us who believe that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us right now. Father, these things are spiritually discerned. So God, i just ask asking that you would come. I believe that this is what you desire for us as a church and for your people. I believe that it is for your glory. And so God, I ask that you would come and that you would open the eyes of our hearts and that you would change us today. And that you would then send us out into our community and into our families and into our world as messengers of hope that said, God is real to me and he can be real to you too through repentance and faith. God, do these things that only you can do.